I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Fargo. Once upon a time. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Yeah, you got that right. There was a salesman called Jerry Lundergaard. Okay, real good then. Who always dreamt of striking it rich. Wait, have you had a chance to think about that deal I was talking about, those 40 acres there in Wyzetta? Jerry, we're not going to just give you $750,000. No, no, but see, I... <laughs> so, we all set on this thing then? You want your own wife kidnapped. <laughs> now, her dad, he's real well off, so why don't you just ask him for the money? <laughs> <laughs> Wade, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. But in a place called Fargo... Mr. Lundegaard, I'm a police officer. I'm at Brainerd investigating some malfeasance. Anything can happen. How's Jean? Who's Jean? Ah! My wife. Oops! <laughs> All due respect, Jerry, I don't want you mucking this up. What the heck do you mean? No Jean, no money! Who are you? Circumstances have changed, Jerry. What do you mean? Blood has been shed, Jerry. Here's the second one. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. Can you be any more specific? He wasn't circumcised. Jeez, that's a good lead. Yeah. From the creators of Barton Fink. I'm cooperating here. And there, uh, there's no... Uh... And Raising Arizona. What do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Oh, jeez. You're there in 30 minutes where I find you, Jerry, and I shoot you, and I shoot your wife, and I shoot all your little children, and I shoot them all in the back of the little heads. You got it? You should see the other guy. Oh, jeez. Fargo. End of story. Yeah, but the deal was the car first, then the 40000 Like as if it was the ransom. That's William H. Macy as a desperate car salesman talking to a couple of tough guys he's hired to kidnap his wife. It's going to be a lot more complicated than any of them realize. The story, based on a real-life case, is told in Fargo, the just-about-perfect new movie by the Coen brothers, Ethan and Joel, whose credits include Blood Simple and Barton Fink. Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare play the two hired killers who plan to split the ransom with the car dealer. Hey, look at that, Twin Cities. Following the kidnapping, the guys get pulled over and do some shooting, and the next morning, we meet Frances McDormand playing the pregnant local police chief. William H. Macy is brilliant as the bankrupt car salesman who finds his plan going terribly, disastrously wrong. And always at the middle of the movie is Frances McDormand, a mild-mannered, friendly, even chirpy police chief who doggedly figures everything out. It is a great performance, and Fargo is the best movie the Coen brothers have ever made, a quirky, infectious American masterpiece. Well, you know, last year, back in January, I said I didn't think I'd expect to see a better film more year than Crumb, yeah. and I didn't. It was a real good call. Even you put it second on your list. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make the same call here now in March. Okay. Because there won't be a better film than this. I mean, this is, you called it a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I'll go on and limb and say that, too. And I want to even go further and say this, that the Coen brothers, now, if you look at Blood Simple, mm -hmm. Raising Arizona, and Barton Fink, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these guys are creating one fantastic original piece of work every single time. Mm -hmm. These are these guys deserve to be known with some of the finest directors that have worked in motion pictures. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a, a dull moment here. There isn't an unoriginal moment. They have a very precise way of, of dialogue 
that is accurate. It yeah. is the way people talk, well, as well I, as the speech pattern yeah. of a hey, hey, yeah, yeah, and all that. Yeah. They've got the words right, well, They too. have the words exactly right. And you know what I like, too, was the stylistic freedom they gave themselves. This is a very violent movie. It's yes. a very funny movie. At the end, there's some poetry and some uh, whimsy. Oh, there, there was stuff in this movie about the minutiae of the routine of a long marriage. Yes. There is stuff in there about yes. two partners that don't get father along. Father and son, father-in-law and son-in-law. Oh, that's oh my God. And the, for, how about, what about the son that goes off to McDonald's, gets and, up from the dinner oh, table? But listen, I mean, they're just they one detail have, after they even another. They have the, yeah. the, the accountant assistant to the big boss. I mean, that's mm -hmm. very clever writing there. You know, a family business, and there's the loyal helper there yeah, yeah, who yeah. hates the son-in-law. Yeah. Uh, oh, son this movie has one. Welcome back to our Coen Brothers director's series. This one was when they hit the big time. Fargo from 1996 was nominated at the Oscars for Best Picture, losing to The English Patient, Best Director, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, Best Support Actor for William H. Macy, and Best Editing for Roderick James, an award one assumes would have left the stage eerily empty had Walter Murch not won the editing for English Patient. Those Oscars, they really do like their across-the-board winners, don't they? But also beyond these nominations, Fargo won Best Screenplay for Joel and Ethan Cohen and a well-earned Best Actress for the phenomenal Frances McDormand. Turns out coming back to do a job for those two oddballs who gave her the starring role 12 years ago in Blood Simple was the action that rocketed her career up to respected superstar status and Oscar darling, something which has never subsided. Other awarding bodies that nominated Fargo include the American Film Institute, the American Society of Cinematographers, the BAFTAs, the Belgian Film Critics Association, the Cannes Film Festival, the Golden Globes, the Golden Satellite Awards, Independent Spirit Awards, the National Board of Review, the National Film Preservation Board, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Saturn Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Writers Guild of America Awards, the London Film Critics Circle, and the Bodil Awards. Fargo begins with a notification that the events you are about to see are based on real life. This is a bold-faced lie, thank goodness, but that doesn't prevent it from being an accurate, warm yet acerbic portrait of North Dakota living, shrouded in nonetheless foreboding, blinding white snow. There's that intro sequence where you, all you can see is this, this just white wall, and Carter Burwell's score starts slowly like violin droning through and then there's the drums finally dung 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 and these cars come bursting out of the fruit frozen mist it's quite extraordinary for a place that one would assume feels very ordinary especially to americans indeed well i think that's that's part of the point of the the setting and the story i mean i would say with regards to the music by the way that opening theme is beautiful and I would swear there's a Scandinavian fiddle in there. Oh yeah. You know the one like that was in the... Two Towers? Yes, the Edoras theme. Yeah.
the snow, and this keeps coming back throughout the film, the snow as a setting, it works as a concealer and as a revealer mm. in different contexts. Thinking and about it, it, sorry, just to backpedal us a little, it actually makes perfect sense that there's a sort of a Nordic twang to this because the the Fargo accent and even just a lot of the people look Scandinavian, mm. yeah, sound mm. Scandinavian. That There's a settlement specifically there. I was just going to say, Minnesota and I believe some of the surrounding environs were originally settled by Scandinavians. Oh, yeah. Which is where a lot of the food choices come from. Yeah, you like hot Salted dish? fish. I'll put marshmallow in my casserole. Uh, that, I, I think that might be an Amer- American <laughs> development. But the, the, I'm thinking particularly of like the salted fish. Ludafisk. Yeah. It's best with lots of butter. Yeah. yeah. Continue with what you were saying. Um, the the yeah, snow so the, being the a snow, hiding... It, it will cover things up if you leave them undisturbed for long enough. Mm. However, spray blood across it and it will scream out loud what you've been up to. Nice. And it's it's such a fundamental part of life in this in this town, in this area... But because of the nature of how it comes and goes and, and mostly comes in this at this point in time, it makes it difficult for people to get traction when they're trying to achieve anything, which is what so many of the characters in this are struggling with, that they're trying to get out, to get up, to get somewhere, and it's things are holding them back, which are represented by trying to drive in snow. Can you crack a fucking window open there? You know, it's proven that secondhand smoke is a uh, carcinogenic, uh, you know, a cancer agent. Hey, look at that, Twin Cities. It's the IDS building, the big glass one. Tallest skyscraper in the Midwest after the uh, Sears in uh, Chicago or John Hancock building, whatever. You never been to Minneapolis? Nope. Would it kill you to say something? I did. No. It's the first thing you've said in the last four hours. That's a... That's a fountain of conversation, man. That's a geyser. I mean, whoa, Teddy, stand back, man. Shit. I'm sitting here driving. Doing all the driving, man. Whole fucking way from Brainerd, driving. Just trying to chat. You know... Keep our spirits up, fight the boredom of the road, and you can't say one fucking thing just in the way of conversation. Oh, fuck it. I don't have to talk either, man. See how you like it. Just total fucking silence. Two could play at that game, smart guy. We'll just see how you like it. Total silence. And it was the 90s, so the climate of independent filmmakers putting out dark, funny crime thrillers with memorable, winning scripts, exceptional casting, and shocking violence was in full swing, with Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, and Joel and Ethan Cohen here, and soon enough Guy Ritchie attempting the East London version of the same thing. People complain regularly about superhero fatigue, which is understandable when it feels like you can't take a step through the areas films are discussed without a cape popping up, and that's been the case for the 21st century to date, going into overdrive in the second decade. But if you were able to watch R-rated movies in the 90s, with horror taking a bit of a backseat, as we discussed on our Candyman show, they just kind of 
put the brakes on horror for a while after the 80s and the uh, era of video nasties. But yeah, with horror taking the back seat, there were just so many crime-related films to choose from, even outside of the catalogues of the aforementioned frontrunners, to the point where it felt like everything else was made for kids. And if you were an adult, here is your regular plateful of crime. Hope it's violent enough for you. Among other films, there were Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Feeling Minnesota, Two Days in the Valley, The King of New York, A Bronx Tale, LA Confidential, California with a K, Copland, Bad Lieutenant, Get Shorty, Thelma and Louise, Billy Bathgate, Donnie Brasco, My Cousin Vinny, Carlito's Way, Killing Zoe, Natural Born Killers, The Usual Suspects, Seven, Love and a 45, True Romance, Point Break, Heat, Goodfellas, Casino, Mobsters, The Glimmer Man, Last Boy Scout, Last Man Standing, Swimming with Sharks, Suicide Kings, Very Bad Things, True Crime, American History X, The Replacement Killers, Assassins, Point of No Return, Devil in a Blue Dress, Traces of Red, The Newton Boys, The Chase, The Getaway, A Simple Plan, Best Laid Plans, Ronin, Pusher, U-Turn, Wild at Heart, Shallow Grave, Money Train, Bugsy, Set It Off, The Jackal, The Negotiator, Hard Eight, The Boondock Saints, Out of Sight, and of course, Copycat. Don't you ever fucking complain, people, that we've got too many superheroes films. You weren't there, man! If you were if you were there in the 90s and you thought, there's a fine range of films being released at this point, why aren't films like the 90s? It's all just... It's all just IPs now. Do you know what it was then? Crime. Crime, crime, crime. Crimity, crimity, crime. And the good ones are memorable. And the meh ones just faded away. Mafia adjacent. We're a pro-mafia <laughs> podcast, much like we hate movies. I don't want to end up <coughs> folded in half inside a Ford Mondeo. Open the gin up and find a testy. <clears throat> and that is excluding crime uh, films about crimes in black neighborhoods. I very specifically steered clear of things like Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood. Oh, I, I did say set it off, so technically that should count as a black crime thing, because ultimately, black people being able to make films about themselves, that was something new and good and commendable, and ultimately, wave, hand-waving all of that in the same sweep as all of the white crime going on, it, it just felt churlish, so I didn't include most of them. Question, yep. what percentage of that list has got Martin Scorsese's toe in it? Honestly, just two or three. <laughs> Casino yeah. and Goodfellas are the ones I recall. Donny Brasco, not him? Nope. That's uh, Mike Newell. And I'm also not including all the courtroom dramas, many of which we had, all of which were predicated on some sort of crime or another. A full third of which had Tom Cruise in them. Oh, yeah. And the others will have Matthew McConaughey in them. <laughs> Most of them were written by John Grisham. Some of them were written by someone else. A lot of them were written by Michael Crichton. There was also erotic thrillers, which we don't get much anymore. Either way, Every decade crime, is, crime, 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 crime. is gripped by something. And in this decade, Twas Crime gripped the world. It was a number one subject for popular movies with the various sub-genres of thrillers, comedies, action movies, police investigations, and serial killers. And of course, that most straightforward route to a tense story full of arguments and frayed tempers, The Kidnapping. Which, I would argue... 
the Coen brothers have had enough practice at to make them kind of the champions of the the kidnapping gone wrong movie. Mm. Well, the 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 any crime gone wrong, but yes, the the kidnapping mm. is definitely a. Oh, I suppose uh, a life less ordinary is another kidnapping yeah. comedy. Kidnapping comedy where the kidnapping doesn't exactly go wrong, but certainly mm. does not go according to the original kidnapper's plan. But if you've ever seen Pain and Gain, that's Michael Bay. We've already said this. Looking at the Coen brothers and going, I want that. Yeah, but where the where the Coen brothers tend to shine in their uh, presentation of crime is that they start with, and we have said this before, they start with a small time lie or criminal act that grows and grows in magnitude as the perpetrators try to cover up the peripheral elements mm. and prevent discovery thereof. Whether Ooh, that I be, forgot bound. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Whether that be by law enforcement or bigger fish that are determined to squash the, the small fry who's done this mm. small-time misdeed. And this is a really good example of it. Yes, it is. Uh, the, uh, the fact that the snow is so prevalent, it feels like... This whole film is a crime wherein there's a huge pool of blood that's growing and somebody puts a big white handkerchief on it and then the blood immediately soaks up into the white handkerchief. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really love about Margie being our hero Mm -hmm. is that the way she uses communication is very different to everybody else in the film. Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed about the script is that so much of it is repetition Mm -hmm. or rephrasing or reframing what's just been said Mm. and it gives this strong sense that the people here in spite of the fact that it's such a close-knit community Mm. they don't really understand each other and they are becoming more and more frustrated by that fact Mm. and Margie uses uh communication particularly about the little things as a point of connection between her and other people rather than a barrier which is the way that it comes across with some of the others and the result of that is that we are left with her perspective on things being when it's this much trouble to cover up all these lies wouldn't honesty just be easier Yes. Uh, Margie, Which I can relate to very strongly. Margie's one of those exceptions to the all cops are bastards rule. And uh, this uh, most of the film, at least from the second half onwards, is her police investigation as things start to go uh, tits up. Mm. Margie, I would say, for, I mean, the, the fact that she's a sheriff for a start yeah. is, is slightly different. I'm not going to say that that is necessarily qualitatively different in terms of, of how sheriffs the, the country across behave. Mm. But the nature of her relationship to her community is that she comes across more like a school principal, I suppose. Mm. The duty adult. Yeah. 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 And she fulfills that very well, but in an almost preschooler teacher type way with with difficult people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So Fargo manages to not replicate most of the more tropey elements that emerged naturally from quite so many films telling similar stories. And it's worth noting, by the way, I was throwing a lot of films in together. So up there, that massive list, you've got some fucking classic gems. Heat, LA Confidential, Goodfellas. I don't like it at all, but that's a classic right there. Out of sight. Out of sight. I fucking love that film. They were alongside a bunch of less important films. Less conducive to uh, internalization like Love and a 45. Remember that one with Venezuela, Rory Cochrane and someone else? Yes, I do remember that one actually. There's a lot of Bonnie and Clyde style 
you know, two young people in love on the run shooting a people type Badlands by Terence Malick, true romance true type romance films. True romance is probably one of the better examples, mm. but um, even that one I'm not massively fond of. Yeah. <laughs> This is not Hans Zimmer's true romance theme. This is Gassenhauer by Carl Orff, who also did O Fortuna. The theme for Terence Malick's Badlands from 1973, and definitely what Zimmer was riffing on. Because generationally speaking, the crime films of the 90s reflected the crime films of the late 60s and 70s, which gave rise to directors making unsafe crime films outside of the studio system. Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Butch and Sundance, The Getaway, Bullet, Easy Rider, Serpico, The Long Goodbye, Dirty Harry, Dog Day Afternoon, Death Wish, Taking a Pelham 123, Assault on Precinct 13, The Parallax View, French Connection, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, and of course the directors of the 90s grew up on those. But yeah, so many films told very similar stories to this, but there's a strangely relaxed, almost hypnotic air about proceedings in Fargo. And we won't be talking about the TV show, this is like, we haven't seen a lick of that, and this is just about the movie. And while the kidnapping causes a lot of stress, there is a great deal of time allowed to oddball characters and what might feel like unimportant scenes, as in what is this really contributing towards the plot? of two or three people nudging basic premises back and forth between each other. So it feels like it's a, it's a almost episodic collection of bits that all plays into this one kidnapping fiasco. Mm. And it doesn't seem apparent until you go back and watch it and realize quite how much of a character piece it is that these scenes were important for telling us about the characters rather than for getting to the bottom of this crime. Mm, indeed. And th there isn't really a... There's no straight line in terms of bad people get punished and good people get rewarded. Mm -hmm. There's no straight line in terms of those lower down on the pecking order get thrown to the wolves while the people at the top come out smelling of roses. But everybody involved in the dishonesty and unfairness seems to, on some level, be klutzy, incompetent, and even if they are reasonably competent, like Wade, overlook something that makes that means they end up coming a cropper. Mm. Let's establish what the actual central crime is. Jerry Lundegaard, played by the great William H. Macy, in one of his wormiest performances. I think uh, he'd been in films before this, but this was the one that made people go, ooh, William H. Macy, let's cast him in things if we want to get this kind of oily, frustrated, excuse-making, crumpled, dignity vacuum feel to this character. He's semi-pathetic the it's whole like time. It's like creep light. Hmm. He's, he's not particularly horrible. You wouldn't want to necessarily avoid him, but you wouldn't want to extend your dealings with him past the point of necessity. He's a greedy little fool guy. Yes. Yes. Uh, so he has arranged, badly, 
underline that in red sharpie badly, to have his wife kidnapped by two shady types that he doesn't know and whom he only really connected with from someone he works with giving him their number. He wants them to kidnap his wife, then his rich father-in-law, Wade, who you just mentioned, will pay the ransom, which Jerry will skim a big chunk of and give a, a, a much smaller amount than the actual ransom to the kidnappers, because the kidnappers believe, this is Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormare, who I think this is one of the first films I'd ever seen him in. He looked like a peroxided Bruce Willis, who in 1997, obviously that was Bruce Willis with both The Jackal and Fifth Element. Obviously over the years, there's a real character behind Peter Stormare's performances, which seems fairly consistent throughout. He is a renter scumbag. Yes. I've never seen him as a romantic comedy lead. It, you wouldn't get it. Drug Lord, Peter Stormare's your man. Yeah. Russian mafia guy, maybe not the guy at the top, but your guy in the middle you still don't want to fuck with? Absolutely. Actually playing Satan in Constantine? Peter Stormare. Yep. Pornographer come rug thief? Come rug thief. Peter Stormare's your man. Nihilist? Definitely. He, it must be exhausting. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You're Jerry Lundegaard? Yeah. Shep Proudfoot said... Shep said you'd be here at 7.30. What gives, man? Shep said 8.30. We've been sitting here an hour. He's peed three times already. Oh, I'm sure sorry. Shep told me 8.30. It was a mix-up, I guess. You got the car? Yeah, you bet. It's out in the lot there. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. Yeah, okay. Well, sit down, then. I'm Carl Showalter. This is my associate, Gayer Grimsrud. Yeah, how you doing? So... We all set on this thing, then? Sure, Jerry, we're all set. Why wouldn't we be? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure you are. Shep vouched for you and all. I got every confidence here in you fellas. I, I guess that's it, then. Here are the keys. No, that's the not it, Jerry. Huh? The new vehicle plus $40,000. Yeah, but the deal was the car first, then the 40000 Like as if it was the ransom. I thought Shep told you. Shep didn't tell us much, Jerry. Well, okay. It's... Except that you were going to be here at 7.30. Yeah, well, that was a mix-up then. Yeah, you already said that. Yeah, but it, it's not a whole pay-in-advance deal. See, I give you a brand-new vehicle in advance, and then... I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and debate. I will say this, though. What Shep told us didn't make a whole lot of sense. Oh, no. It's real sound. It's all worked out. You want your own wife kidnapped. Yeah. You... My point is, you pay the ransom, what, 80,000 bucks? I mean, you give us half the ransom, 40,000, you keep half. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay. See, it's not me paying the ransom. The thing is, my wife, she's wealthy. Her dad, he's real well off. Now, I'm in a bit of trouble. What kind of trouble are you in, Jerry? Well, that's, that's, I'm not gonna get into, into, see, I just need the money. Now, her dad, he's real well off. So, why don't you just ask him for the money? Or your fucking wife, you know. Or your fucking wife, Jerry. Well, it's all part of this. They don't know I need it, see? Okay, so there's that. And even if they did, I wouldn't get it. So there's that on top then. See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Yeah, personal matters that... Needn't, uh... Okay, Jerry. 
You're tasking us to perform this mission, but you won't, uh... You won't... Oh, fuck it. Let's take a look at that Sierra. So, effectively, Jerry is feeling broke and powerless. His father has all the money, and they get into an argument at one point where he's, he's um, trying to get his father to cut him a break. And he, he says, you know, what about um, Jean, his wife, and, and, and Scotty? You know, they're, they're going to have to struggle because I'm struggling financially. And the father-in-law says, oh, no, no, Jean and Scotty will never have to struggle in a kind of a, in the absence of a dependable, reliable father, husband, and caregiver... I will play that role. Because his father-in-law has nothing but contempt for Jerry. He's one of those, why did you marry this one yeah, guys? It, it does occasionally seem like the reason he is being so obtuse about what help Jerry is asking him for, because the, the, the where this all sparks from is Jerry has found an opportunity for a business investment. Yeah. And it's going to cost him three quarters of a million. Yeah, and he doesn't and have that he money. He doesn't have that. He money. asked for it for a loan from Wade, who said no. Right? Yeah, well, it, initially he asked for it, but I don't think he told him what it was for. And Wade obviously said no because I, I mean I think if can I borrow three quarters you, of a million? No, I can't tell you what it's for. Yeah, exactly. That immediately sounds dodgy, but then eventually. By the way, you Jerry know that does... a modern day Jerry would have gone long on crypto. Yes. And. The amount of NFTs decorating that, decorating that man's desktop. Lots. <laughs> um, but then eventually he does tell Wade what the deal is for, at which point Wade goes, well, I'm just going to go in on that myself. Mm. Jerry, I will give you a finder's fee. How much do you want? Yeah. And, and there's another businessman there who's like, yes, I'm going to wet my beak on this too, but Jerry is effectively excluded from his own scheme. Exactly. And I think the, the kidnapping is something that Jerry's kind of been setting up on the side, but he doesn't really spring it until Wade has has put this on him that that if Wade supports him in this deal he is going to lose the bulk of his potential comeback from mm -hmm. it and so he decides that the kidnapping is really the only way to go yeah uh, his wife Jean is a, a sweet kind of midwestern lady we don't really get to see too much of her but she's very much an all in all type uh, uh, mumsy type lady she is but she is also extremely nervous mm and really leans into the physical comedy of being a freaked out, anxious woman who is suddenly put in a position where her house has been broken into and people are going to kidnap her. Yeah. And the way she, this, this sequence is, it's, it's a weird balance of hilarious and terrifying. I put very specifically, absurd and frightening. Yeah, so, <laughs> They break in. She realizes kind of what's going on. There's a like there's a, then... a moment hang on before they break in. She's looking at uh, she's just knitting while watching TV mm. and she sort of looks up it's broad daylight middle of the afternoon. Steve Buscemi in a balaclava holding a crowbar is peering in through her screen door not 10 feet from her and she kind of looks at him in a kind of a what's that fella doing kind of way as opposed to immediate danger signs. Oh shit. Uh, and then it takes him actually breaking through the glass to spur her into action. Absolutely, but the action that then ensues is essentially that she runs around the house like a chicken with its head cut off for five minutes while Peter Stormare stands there and waits. And eventually she kidnaps herself 
by falling into the shower curtain, which wraps around her and then rolling down the stairs. Peter Stormer doesn't just stand still. She actually has quite an enterprising idea, which is to she's trying to get out the window. Then when Stormer busts in, uh, the window is half open and she's in fact hiding behind the shower curtain. It's just that the plan doesn't really work that then causes her to rush out, getting herself entangled and wrapped in the shower curtain as a result. Mm. So she's she's never really portrayed as dumb. No, And it's a panicky. lot less hilarious when you see it the second time and you realize this poor woman ends the film a corpse and you don't even get to see a scene where she is killed. Not that you'd want to anyway. Mm. It's just she's calmly, casually, just a waste of life killed off screen by this fucking monster Peter Stormare is playing. Mm. And this is all because of Jerry's insecurities and greed. Where is Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. What are you nuts? We have pancakes for breakfast. Gotta go to a place where I can get a shot and a beer and steak maybe. Not more fucking pancakes, come on. Oh, come on, man. Okay, here's an idea. We can stop outside of Brainerd. I know a place there we can get laid. What do you think? I'm fucking hungry now, you know. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. I'm saying we can stop, get pancakes, and then we'll get laid, all right? And Scotty, the boy who's about to uh, find out that his mom's dead and uh, his father's going to jail for the kidnapping of his mom, and also his grandfather is dead as a uh, result of this bungled deal, is left with absolutely nothing. We don't see too much of Scotty. He's a bit of a little shit, but you can kind of excuse it for his upbringing and the fact that he's that specific age when you're kind of selfish and no no kid deserves this punishment. Oh, absolutely not. But no, he hasn't been presented. We, we can see from his family that there is no particular role model that would provide him with a reason to be a better person than he is. Mm. And Jerry, while this kidnapping is going on, we also get to see some some fantastic characterization of him. He works at a is it a used car dealership or just a car dealership? It's just a car dealership. I mm. think I, the the way he's trying to sell people on the paint coating, I mm. think it's it's new cars because they come yeah. off the lot with that on or off. Well, he's upselling and kind of sneaking in upgrades to cars without the permission of the people buying the cars. So what we have to sit through is a really awkward back and forth with an increasingly irate buyer who calls Jerry a piece of shit for lying to him, which he definitely does several times, in order to get a slightly higher commission. Yeah. Well, one presumes that he gets a bonus for selling the the paint coat. Indeed. We sat right here in this room and went over this and over this. Yeah, but that true coat... I sat right here and said I didn't want any true coat. Yeah, but I'm saying that true coat, you don't get it, you get oxidation problems. It'll cost you a heck of a lot more than $500. You're sitting there, you're, you're talking in circles, you're talking like we didn't go over this already. Yeah, but this true coat... We had a deal here for nineteen five. You sat there and darn if you didn't tell me you'd get me this car, these options, without the ceiling for nineteen five. All right, I'm not saying I didn't. You called me 20 minutes ago and said you had it ready to make delivery. It says, come on down and get it. And, 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 and here you are and you're wasting my time and my wife's time and... And I'm paying 19.5 for this vehicle here. All right. I'll talk to my boss. See, they install that true code at the factory. There's nothing we can do. But I'll, I'll talk to my boss. 
These guys here, these guys? It's always the same. It's always more. You going to the Gophers on Sunday? Oh, you betcha. You wouldn't have an extra ticket. You kidding? Well. He never done this before. But seeing as it's special circumstances and all, he says I can knock $100 off that true coat. 100. You lied to me, Mr. Lundgaard. You're a bald-faced liar. A fucking liar. Bucky, please. Where's my goddamn checkbook? Let's get this over with. The way Jerry comes across each time he's in any situation where someone has him dead to rights is impotent and flailing. He isn't very good at lying on his feet. It's, it's always obvious when he's panicking and lying. So stop doing it, man. And, You're not good at it. <laughs> and he seems to have no faith in his ability to sell a lie. It's always just like, I'm in more trouble. I'm in even more trouble. I'm in even more trouble now. So when Margie comes sniffing around asking if a car that was given to these kidnappers has disappeared from this lot, he's like, ah, mm, oh, yeah, oh, the, the basement. And then drives away while she's there investigating. It's it, he, he may as well just walk around with a giant guilty sign around his neck. And notably, at the uh, the end of the film, when the uh, cops break into his motel room, uh, he first off he's answering the uh, from behind the door, saying Jerry Lundergarden. I don't know who that is. And then when they find him and catch him, he's halfway out the bathroom window, much like his wife attempted. Only his squealing, pathetic, wormy, just it is a kid stood next to the cookie jar, hands and face covered in chocolate, grizzling. Like, there, there isn't a shred of maturity in this man. He's in his pants. I mean, at least put your trousers on before you go. Yeah, she means underpants. Ooh. Is this your Burgundy 98 out here? Just a sec. Could you open the door, please? Yeah, yeah, just a sec. Just a sec. No, no, no. Anyway, so Margie is introduced uh, roughly after the kidnapping starts and uh, a, a cop uh, out in the uh, sticks winds up dead because Peter Stormare's character is a fucking psychopath and in the negotiation for let me see your license and re registration his response is just oh fuck it and shooting this guy in the head he's a little bit like a much more sloppy Anton Sugar really sloppy? really really sloppy yeah. a fucking bum version of Anton Sugar <laughs> yeah. but uh, I mean in terms of I've killed this person this person this person and this person I've got away with all of them I just keep moving from town to town no one really ever chases after me human life means absolutely nothing to him so if someone irritates him he will kill them yes so he, he fulfills that quota of mysterious, dangerous stranger on the road. However, Steve Buscemi undercuts that by being a similar, sniveling, wormy little shit who complains about everything and is so unutterably cheap, going back to Mr. Pink back in Reservoir Dogs. You, you pointed out, what is it about Steve Buscemi and cars and lots and lots of blood? He 
outlines himself at one point when he's trying to go in and do a car trade for part of the kidnapping and having to pay four dollars even though he's only come in to turn a circle round and come back out again he makes a petulant fuss to the poor sod in the uh, toll booth who's just doing his job insulting him on a personal level because he doesn't want to part with four dollars. And how much does he have in that case? That's not there yet, but he later on ends up with somewhere in the region of three quarters of a million dollars. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I decided not to park here. Well, what do you mean, you decided not to park here? Yeah, I just came in, I decided not to park here, so. But, well, I, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I decided not to, I, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I decided not to take the trip as it turns out, so. Well, I'm sorry, sir. We still got to charge you the $4. I just pulled in here. I just fucking pulled in here. Well, but, see, there's, there's a minimum charge of $4. Uh, Long-term parking charges by the day. I guess you think you're, uh, you know, like an authority figure? That stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? King clip on tie there, big fucking man, huh? You know, these are the limits of your life, man. The rule of your little fucking gate here, here. There's your four dollars, you pathetic piece of shit. But then he gets all cheapo with Grimsrud, who is Peter Stormare's character, when they start arguing about who's gonna have the car and who's not, and that's when uh, Stormare decides, oh, fuck it, and just runs out after him in his long winter underwear, wielding an axe and just, like, shining level. Lops his fucking head off. But this is not until after the disapproving father-in-law has gone to the cash drop because he doesn't, he trust, doesn't Jerry, trust Jerry. And rightly so. Yeah. And then thus he screws up the exchange. They should he should have bought a ringer and phone in a ringer for a ringer. But again, like screwing up the exchange is something that happens a lot in Coen Brothers movies. It's like, it's a very simple, straightforward exchange of things. How can it go wrong this way, this way, Let and then this the way? Ways. <laughs> and it's in the case of this, it's it's down to uh, petty, unreasonable, angry, frightened men afraid of feeling impotent. But in the meantime, Margie's on the case, questioning people left and right, and it's around about here that people start saying, oh yeah, in every scene. And I, I can completely understand people from Minnesota watching this and either going one of two ways, of, oh, that's just like my Uncle Deaky, or, wow, we don't say yeah quite so much as they're suggesting here. I've been living in Brainerd my whole life. I think I said yeah four times. But uh, it's kind of like a... It's an infectious phrasing that just ends up scattered throughout the, the second half of this film. It's hilarious. But again, the, why, why I uh, consider it to be a warm portrayal of that area is that Margie is the most human and decent person, and she's very much kind of entrenched in this uh, Brainerd um, culture. Like she, She's... A right neighborly neighbor. She's kind to you all the time, and then when you're snippy and shitty with her, she'll get like a teacher and kind of you don't need to be like that. But she won't snap herself and and start hurling abuse. She has boundaries which are flexible but firm. Yeah, uh, which is always nice to see. Hi, hello. Woo! What you got there? Argy, thought you might need a little warm up. Thanks a bunch. So what's the deal now? 
Gary says triple homicide? Yeah, it looks pretty bad. Two of them are over here. Where is everybody? Well, it's cold, Margie. Watch your step, Margie. Oh, jeez. So... Oh, jeez. Here's the second one. It's in the head and the hand there. I guess that's a defensive wound. Oh, yeah? Where's the state trooper? Back there, a good piece in the ditch next to his prowler. Okay. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit. Ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. From his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. You have breakfast yet, Margie? Oh, yeah. Norm made some eggs. Yeah? Well, what now do you think? Let's go take a look at that trooper. And at uh, one point she gets, because she's having to visit, she's visiting Fargo from Brainerd or the other way around? Yeah, she, so she's, she she's from Brainerd. Yeah, so to continue this investigation, she has to uh, go and uh, uh, stay a, a day or so in the city. And she's uncomfortable because she's seven months pregnant. And she never really batters people with, I'm pregnant, so I should get special treatment. She asks them for assistance. Yeah, and occasionally, don't squeeze me, I'm expecting. Yeah. But everyone's wearing massive winter coats, so it's actually kind of difficult it to tell difficult that she's seven tell. months it's, pregnant. It's usually just things along the lines of, I need a moment to throw up. Is there I any chance I could just sit down for a moment? Mm. Could somebody get me a glass of water? That yeah. kind of thing. And, you know, she's... They're right, not unreasonable requests. She's pally and chummy with Jerry, who eventually uh, becomes shirty and shitty and then uh, does a bunk on her. I think maybe the most lift out, what is even the point of this scene, but at the same time a very Coen Brothers call and response type scene, she meets up with a uh, old school friend of hers who's just called her up out of the blue, Mike Yanagita, who invites her to dinner and she has to keep putting him at arm's length in a kind of, you're getting a bit too grabby and close there and like he's gushing in a, a, a sort of I'm so happy to see you kind of way and then tells her about his wife uh, who died and uh, they, they both knew her, she was one of their uh, classmates and he appears to be giving her a sob story and he eventually uh, admits that he's so lonely and uh, he doesn't say outright, I desperately, desperately want to sleep with you, but every single bit of body language and every expulsion from his mouth expresses that. That is less the impression I get and more that he is looking for some companionable, wifely kindness. Maybe. But then when we find out in the response to this call and response, uh, someone else talks to Margie on the phone and says, oh no, he, he never married that lady and she's alive and well. So he was stringing, a, stringing you for a line. That is a very fine point. Marge? Jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, you look great. Yeah, so do you. Oh, easy there, easy there. Easy there, easy there. You do too. I'm expecting Oh, you. I see that. that. That's great. Oh, what can I get you? 
Oh, just a Diet Coke, please. Great. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is a nice place. Yeah. You know, it's a Radisson, so it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, you're living in a diner then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of years now. Uh, it's actually Eden Prairie, that, that school district. Mm. So, Chief Gunderson then. Oh, so, you went and married an armed son of a Gunderson. Oh, yeah, a long time ago. Great, great. So, uh, what brings you down? Uh, are you down here on that homicide if you're uh, allowed, to, you know, to discuss that? Oh, yeah, yeah, but there's not a heck of a lot to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what about you, Mike? Are you married? You got kids? Yeah, yeah, well, uh... I was married. Uh, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. oh uh, okay. Sorry. Oh, uh, no, no. Just so I can see you. Don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean to... No, uh... no. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Um, so, uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. You, you remember Linda? She was a year behind us. Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. yeah. She. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it didn't work out. Huh? Well, and then I and then I've been working for Honeywell for a few years now. Oh well, they're a good outfit. Yeah. If you're an engineer, yeah, you could do a lot worse. Uh, but it's uh, not. Uh, it's nothing like your your achievement. Oh, well, it sounds like you're doing really super. It's not that, uh, it's not that things didn't work out, it's, uh, uh, Linda, uh, had leukemia, you know. Uh, she was, uh, she, she passed away. No. Uh, it was tough, uh, there you go. it was long, uh, I, she fought real hard, Marge. You know, uh, that's, what, what can you say? Better times, huh? Better times. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV, and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No, I... I... I'm sorry, it's, uh, you know... I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. Uh, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then... I've been so lonely. It's okay, Mike. But you think he's all right. I saw him last night and... Well, it's nothing specific he said. It just seemed like it all hit him really hard. His wife dying. His wife? Linda. Who? Linda Cooksey. No. No, no, they were. He, well, he was bothering Linda for about over a good year. Really pestering her. Wouldn't leave her alone. So. They didn't. They never. No. No, they never married. I said psychiatric problems. Oh, my. Yeah, he's been struggling. He's living with his parents now. Oh, jeez. Linda's fine. You should call her. Jeez. Well, jeez. That's a surprise. 
again, that whole, why are you telling me this massive, massive lie? Which tangentially does relate to the web that uh, Jerry has spun for himself and gotten tangled in. Yes. But again, this is uh, a scenario that informs on character rather than directly impacting the actual crime. And by the end of the film, philosophically speaking, Margie doesn't really solve the case. She just gets to the uh, place where poor Jean was kidnapped and held. She's already dead. And Steve Buscemi's character, having gotten into a, uh, a really nasty little shootout with uh, Wade, has been killed with an axe and fed into a wood chipper by Stormare, who is just like standing in a lake of crimson, uh, you know, beside the actual frozen lake, as he just sort of feeds more and more bits of Buscemi. And I think that you can see a boot sticking out. It's, again, absurd and frightening. And Margie ends up being able to apprehend him and, and taking him in, but he doesn't speak. He's not a talker. So she's trying to communicate with him in the car, not really expecting him to say much, but she's puzzled. It is a simple case of, you did all of this, all of these people died as a result, and it was for a little bit of money, which, as we've already established in these uh, episodes, goes across the whole Cohen series. It's always a little bit of money that too many people end up dying for. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. And those three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. between the end of this and the end of No Country for Old Men is that Tommy Lee Jones's character, when faced with the, but why all this hmm. horror from Shiger, goes home to his wife and is puzzling over it until she eventually says, maybe you just need to let this go. Hmm. Or words to that effect. Margie, when faced with all this, questions it, but then goes home to Norm 
and lets it go. They have a conversation which is literally her grounding herself in the very everyday normal achievements hmm. that that Norm has come by. His his artwork that's been accepted as as being the three cent stamp. The mallard. The You're mallard. a mallard. Uh, this is another one of those wonderful little scenes. It's uh, as you say, it's mundane, but. Uh, the framing of this shot is two people huddled together for warmth in front of the glow of a TV, like two people in a cave with a fire on, and they're able to generate enough warmth for each other to be able to cope with the coldness outside. Absolutely, yeah. She wakes up, when we first meet her, she wakes up in the very early hours, having been called to investigate this murder, and Norm gets up with her to make her some eggs. And he is not a handsome man. He is not a charming man. He is not the sort of person that women would be like, I wish I was married to him. But his level of supportiveness and like not even thinking about, you know, is this too much of a faff for me to do? Like, he is absolutely there for Margie. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, you say that, but somebody who will get up to make you eggs when you have to go out at 4.30 in the morning, that's a keeper. Indeed. And John Carroll Lynch, one of uh, We Hate Movies' favourites, played Norm. And I love his little twisted smile when he sort of uh, admits, yeah, they, they, it's the three cent stamp. And she's like, you're mallard? And it's just this little glow of pride of, yeah, but yeah, it's not much, much of anything. And she comes on like Maureen Lippman in that Antony people will always need plates uh, commercial in a kind of, uh, this is a big deal, don't diminish it. Like, you've achieved something here. This is what a painting of a duck that he's done, which has been chosen for a stamp. And just the... Specifically, people need the little stamps. It's re-emphasizing that even though there's this big, vast, terrifying network of people doing crazy, dark things to each other out there, Norm and Margie live in a place where they want to hold on to the little people and the little things. Absolutely. And, and her whole approach being, <clears throat> why on earth would you bust someone down when you could build them up and it doesn't cost you anything to do so, mm. is lovely. It's incredibly admirable when you're surrounded by the shit she's surrounded by. Mm. Mr. Lundegaard, sorry to bother you again. Can I come in? Yeah, no, I'm kind of I'm uh, kind of busy here. I understand. I'll keep it real short then. I'm on my way out of town, but I was wondering, do you mind if I sit down? Carrying a bit of a load here. No. I... Yeah, it's this vehicle I asked you about yesterday. I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? Because, I mean, how do you know? Because see, the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but, well, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, uh, there's no... Uh... Sir, you have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... I'm not, uh, I, I'm not arguing here. I'm cooperating. And there's no, we're doing all we can. 
Sir, could I talk to Mr. Gustafson? Well, heck, if you want to... If you want to play games here, I'm working with you on this thing here, but... Okay. I'll do a damn luck count. Sir, right now? Yeah, right now. You're darn tootin'. So damn important to you. I'm sorry, sir. Ah, what the Christ. Also, one of the funniest scenes that I didn't really mention was when Steve Buscemi goes on a uh, date with a uh, cool girl who pulls these astonishing faces. They're at a, a, a club and he's sort of just trying to make small talk with her and she's just kind of like twisting her face up and she's already surmised he's not particularly interesting so it cuts straight to the most, what would be the word? Mechanical? Um, ping pong? What's the word that describes the sex they're engaged in? She's like, all right, come on. <laughs> I'm here in Bells. Come on. Huh? All right. Well, where are you? Huh? Huh? Like, it's very impersonal. It's extremely patronizing, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's like she's a teacher trying to teach a kid to cook a pancake or something. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Or a nurse trying to get someone to pee. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's business-like. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's brusque and business-like in a kind of, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of this. Uh, but that is then punctuated by the guy who connected them to Jerry in the first place and has now been implicated in this crime, snatching her away and beating the living shit out of Steve Buscemi, who sells the scene by squealing and being flung about the place. Taint on display, thank you, no. Huh? All right. Well, where are you? Huh? Huh? What the hell you doing? I'm banging that girl. Oh, fuck you, little weasel. Fuck you, man. Again, so many beats in this film that equate to men not in control of their own lives and thus either lashing out or trying to con someone into giving them something that on a superficial level they've told themselves they deserve, but deeper down, their self-image is in tatters and they know they don't. So yeah, uh, Fargo might sound like a sort of a dark, cold and fairly standard if you if you put it in just its just what happens in the film uh 90s crime kidnapping thriller but as you'll see throughout the coen brothers series they managed to put their stamp on things to make them a little different and i i was trying my absolute best not to say warm or quirky after the existing uh, or oddball after the existing few times i said it we've got to somehow get through the rest of this coen brothers series without using warm quirky or oddball okay just find synonyms does their stamp have a mallard on it yes it's the approved stamp of approval <laughs> You get three cents on that one. Oh, and it's noteworthy and thematically exactly on point that Steve Buscemi, when he realized he had far more money than he was expecting from this particular drop-off, decides, I'm going to keep the lion's share of this, just like Jerry had decided to do, and unfortunately being removed from the handoff meant that he was unable to do that, uh, and then brings back only what was promised to them to Peter Stormare. But then... 
foolishly gets into the bickering argument over who's going to have the car. Why are you nick on diamond over the car when you know you have but, way more money than you thought you were But we've gonna. established he already has more money than $4, and yet he'll bitch and yeah. moan about having to spend that. Yeah. That's his fatal flaw, and it gets him hit in the head with an axe yes, and then fed true. into a wood chipper. Yep. But that means that most of the money is just out there in the white, undiscovered. Yes. And in summer, when the snow has all gone... Someone is going to find it because all he had was a windscreen scraper. So he did not dig very deep in yeah. order to bury it. I feel like that's a plot bearing windscreen scraper, even if it's a different one, because the uh, other time when you see a windscreen scraper being used is just after Jerry's been told, thank you, but you're not part of this deal anymore. Mm. The deal that he brought to his father-in-law. And he goes out to his car and in a vain attempt to de-ice it, eventually just starts beating up his own windshield. This is what happens when you have fun with a stranger in the Alps! So they tell me. Yeah, we both did. She went to college, too. I went to Normandale for about a year and a half. Yeah, that's where we met. But I dropped out, though. Yeah, she dropped. Yeah. So where are you girls from? Chaska. Lesueur. But I went to high school in White Bear Lake. Go Bears. Okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. What about the other fella? He was a little older. You know, he looked like the Marlboro Man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But maybe I'm saying that, you know, because he smoked a lot of Marlboros. Uh-huh. You know, like a subconscious type of thing. Oh, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a word for it, a phrase, a uh, frame of mind. Minnesota nice. It is a cultural stereotype applied to the behavior of people from Minnesota and Wisconsin, implying that residents are unusually courteous, reserved, and mild-mannered against people who are not like them. The phrase also implies polite friendliness, an aversion to open confrontation, a tendency towards understatement, a disinclination to make a direct fuss or stand out, an apparent emotional restraint and self-deprecation. It's not a million miles away from the general New Zealand Kiwi demeanor. Playwright and corporate communications consultant Syl Jones suggested that Minnesota nice is not so much about being nice, but is more about keeping up appearances, maintaining the social order and keeping people, including non-natives of the state, in their place. He relates these social norms to the literary work of Danish-Norwegian novelist Axel Sandemos, the fictional Law of Jante. This is a literary fictional code of conduct to denote social attitudes of disapproval towards expressions of individuality and personal success. The ten rules in the law defined by Sandemos, all expressive of variations on a single theme and usually referred to as a homogenous unit, you are not to think you're anyone special or that you're better than us. The ten rules state, 
One, you're not to think you are anything special. Two, you're not to think you are as good as we are. Three, you are not to think you are smarter than we are. Four, you are not to imagine yourselves better than we are. Five, you are not to think that you know more than we do. Six, you are not to think you are more important than we are. Seven, you are not to think you are good at anything. Eight, you are not to laugh at us. Nine, you are not to think anyone cares about you. And ten, you're not to think you can teach us anything. The janters who transgress this unwritten law are regarded with suspicion and some hostility as it goes against the town's communal desire to preserve harmony, social stability and uniformity. While the original intention was as satire, Kim Orlin Kantardiev, a Norwegian politician and educational advisor, claims that the law of Jante is taught in schools as more of a social code to encourage group behaviour and wants to credit it with fueling Nordic countries' high happiness scores. In other words, everyone put your hand up if you are happy. I want to see everyone's hands up. It has also been suggested that contentedness with a humdrum lifestyle is a part of happiness in the Scandinavian countries. However, in Scandinavia, there have also been journalistic articles which link the law of Jante to high suicide rates. Backlash has occurred against the rules, and in Norway, someone even placed a grave for Jante laws, declaring them dead in 2005. However, others have questioned whether they will ever go away, as they may be firmly entrenched in society. When interviewed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Alexander Skarsgård explained that although he had recently received an Emmy and a Golden Globe Award for lauded performances, the inhibitions induced by the law of Jante prevented him from boasting of the accolade. In some interviews, Greta Thurberg credits and appreciates the law for her being ignored by Swedes that see her in public. So you can better understand Minnesota Nice with the law of Yante in place. Garrison Keeler's Prairie Home Companion discusses wobegonics, the supposed language of Minnesotans, which includes no confrontational verbs or statements of strong personal preference. This sounds from the outside like the philosophical opposite of Ayn Rand and Zack Snyder's objectivism. And in England you'll find something called the Northern Work Ethic, where if you're not actively in pain while you're working, you're not working hard enough, but you're also not really allowed to complain. And soft things are mistrusted. Neither sound particularly healthy. Taking human exceptionalism or human unexceptionalism to extremes. The concept has also received some support from the academic community. A national study by Peter Rent Fellow, Samuel D. Gosling and Jeff Potter, done in 2008, found that Minnesota was the second most agreeable and the fifth most extroverted state of the nation, traits associated with nice. The tradition of social progressivism in Minnesota politics had been linked to Minnesota nice culture. And there was a documentary about Fargo set in both Minnesota and let us not forget the neighboring North Dakota. And the documentary was entitled Minnesota Nice. Once again, though darkness encroaches, journalist and Minnesota native Michelle Norris argued the phrase has undertones of irony and despair following the 2020 murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. See also Southern Hospitality. But I'd like to think School of Movies is a more welcoming place. We have a community that actively encourages each other to do our best stuff, to give it a go, to try. And if they don't hit the heady heights of perfection, eh, they had some great fun doing stuff along the way. And they learned, and they grew. It's a modest 
baseline to ask for in an existence. But it feels a damn sight healthier than what I've just been reading about. And actually now might be an apropos time for you folks to tell us about the general attitude where you grew up. Leave us a comment on Patreon or the Discord or Twitter. Were you encouraged to be the best of the best of the best with honours? Or were you encouraged to conform with absolutely everybody else and not stick your neck out? Or somewhere in between? Big thank you, as always, to our top-tier sponsors this week. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. They announced it. They announced it? Yeah. So? Three cent stamp. You're Mallard? Yeah. That's terrific. It's just a three cent. It's terrific. Hoffman's Blue Wing Teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Oh, for peace. Of course they do. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps. Yeah? When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones. Yeah. I guess. It's terrific. I'm so proud of you, Norm. Heck, Norm, you know, we're doing pretty good. I love you, Margie. I love you, Norm. Two more months. Two more months. And speaking of We Hate Movies, let's do something that they do at their live shows. Let's finish this one off with an IMDb user review. A one star, because it's a good film. One star could have been good, but just plain annoying. I can only classify this film as a missed opportunity. While it did have a good storyline, worthy of a film noir, and some very good performances, especially by William H. Macy, you can almost see him crumbling under the weight of not just his crimes, but his cover-ups as well. It is tainted by the Coen Brothers' directorial style. What makes it intolerable for me was the amount of quirkiness that was injected, in, see he used the word, that was injected into every single character, scene and situation. Taken alone, each quirk is not a great deal. But after so many of them, one after the other, it just gets too much to stomach. True story. Just because a story is true does not make it a better story. There is both good and bad fiction and non-fiction. So what is gained by lying about whether a story is true or not? See, if you believe this story is true, then all the quirkiness must be true too. The weather. The snow and cold serve no purpose but to make the characters put on parkas and snow boots, which makes them look quirky. For instance, when the policeman is talking with the man shoveling his driveway and had to put his hood up so far you couldn't see his face, 
quirky. However, anyone who lives in a cold climate knows that when the sky is that grey and the snow is that wet as the stuff he was shoveling, it isn't all that cold. Next one down, shiny happy tedium. What is it about these movies from the Coen brothers which appeals to so many people? How can anyone enjoy a slow-paced, over-the-top acted bore fest with an impressive collection of the most annoying personalities available? Movies which don't seem to go anywhere despite the fact that there's plenty of story to go around. It must be something masochistic which I don't get. Number four is simply the worst Coen brothers movie. 30 out of 67 found this helpful. What they can't achieve with excellent dialogue, well-spun stories, and logical continuity in plotting, the Coens make up for via blood, lust, more blood, and then more blood. Vanquished from their movies is any sense of humanity or hope. Oh, fuck off! <sighs> and we are left in what I can best describe as a bleakscape, where the great positive is the presence of so much that is negative. I do delight, however, in the spectacle of reading swooning fans fawning tribute to the Coen's films, and yes, their fans will watch only films. And how could Frances get an Academy Award for this? Five question marks. She just waggled around like a pregnant duck and tried to speak English with a Swedish accent. Check out Murder on the Orient Express and see how Ingrid Bergman did it. There's a fine actor or actress. <laughs> and number six, the worst movie I've ever seen. And on that bombshell, folks, wow. I have been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. <laughs> <laughs>